series that we started again last week, although we've been in Mark's gospel for a few years now. <laughs> we are, it's now a gift to be back in it. Uh, Jason kicked us off so well last week, the lead pastor of the Journey South County, and we are breaking off this section in Mark's gospel um, uh, to, because, well, Mark himself does, there's a series of related topics he's about to address in Jesus' final week. This is now after Jesus has come into Jerusalem, proclaimed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now we see a variety of different interactions he has with the crowds, eventually leading up to his own death upon a cross and his own resurrection from the grave. We're picking up in about, about Tuesday of that week as a series of questions are being asked of Jesus. This is where the intensity against Jesus has actually reached its climax, just as there's an intensity of appreciation and excitement among the crowds. The religious leaders that uh, were uh, um, around during this time were convinced that Jesus was not who he claimed to be, in fact, was a threat to the Jewish people. And they wanted to reveal him for the fraud that they were convinced that he was. And so we are looking over the next several weeks at some of the tests that they pose Jesus. We're calling a series Testing Jesus. But as we find in this series, and as Jason pointed out last week, it's not just that we, like the crowds, like the religious leaders, test Jesus, but that Jesus ends up testing us along the way, revealing our own hearts, our own assumptions to ourselves. And so we might find ourselves just as tongue-tied as they did if we're listening in well. But we, last week, um, as Jason looked at Jesus and authority, as they were pressing in on Jesus' authority, testing him in this way, he responds by actually testing them this week on their own rejection. He has some questions to ask them as well. And he does so through a very fascinating parable. And so today we're going to look at this parable as Jesus picks a fight now with the crowds, even as they have started this fight with them. And what's interesting is before we uh, do so, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't just blow their rejection off. You know, some of us might be compelled, and I am too. If you're anybody here, you'd say you struggle because you want to please people. Anybody a people pleaser here? I know there's more of you than that. Okay, so... I really want people to like me, to affirm me, to think I'm something impressive. And Jesus seems so wonderfully uncompelled by all of that. But it's interesting. He doesn't just blow off the, the religious leaders, who these are the head haunters. These are the people you want to have on your side. He doesn't just blow them off, haters going to hate. He actually steps forward, advances to them, and confronts them on this very rejection. He insists that they change their minds about him. He doesn't just blow them off and dismiss them. He insists and confronts them that they must see him as he is and as he claims to be. And how does he appeal, them, appeal to them by, to get them to change their tune? By a short story called a parable. You might have heard of parables before. A parable is a short story that is set in the, uh, in, with, in the context of some of their first century um, uh, historical framework, some of the things they would be used to, symbols and daily life, they he would set it in that way, and then he would, ha he would take this story and use it as a means of, of illustrating a kingdom, pr kingdom principle, something about himself, something about God himself, and he does so by throwing, and, he, and it throws us off our balance along the way as we're swept up 
into it, whether you're a Christian or not. And if you want to understand how Jesus understood himself and his ministry, if you want to understand how Jesus insists that we must relate to him and not just the crowds, then you're going to want to tune in. We're going to look at this parable in four parts. The first, the owner's vineyard, and we're going just straight through the storyline. Second, the tenant's rebellion. The third, the son's death. And number four, the father's victory. You ready? Let's look there together. Start with the owner's vineyard. Would you look with me once again to verse 1? This is where I should see noses and Bibles, fingers on pages. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into a different country, another country. Now, before we continue with this parable to the real juicy stuff, and I, I, don't, uh, I don't think anyone here owns a vineyard, do you? Raise your hand. Okay, I didn't think so. So it may be not an illustration that we can in- initially relate to, but it's not that difficult to imagine. A situation, again, is uh, in a day, uh, it was even more common to see wine cultivated even more than in Missouri. Um, the, uh, the, because in this day and age, where water was not always sanitary and safe to drink, wa- wine itself represented life. It was, vineyards were common, and the religious leaders here actually could relate perhaps more than we think with the illustration that he is giving, because many of them were very wealthy. They would have been landowners and maybe have even owned vineyards themselves, and they would have been perhaps all too familiar with the ki- kind of conflicts that comes with the owners of that land and the tenants who worked it. Perhaps something like this feels like not just a soap opera, but daily reality for many in his audience. The setting would have been familiar for another reason, though, especially to religious leaders, not just the historical context, but the image of a vineyard. You see, throughout the Bible, a vineyard is symbolic of something bigger, something more beautiful. It's symbolic, in fact, of the people of God, symbolic of Israel, even before Jesus mentions the conflict in the next verses, they would recognize that Jesus is picking up a well-known metaphor for God and his people and the relationship he has with them, specifically in Isaiah chapter 5. And I want to put some verses on the screen and see if you can notice the similarities. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. He, referring to the Lord, dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Do you notice the image here and how similar it is when it speaks of God? A love song from the Lord himself for his beloved of his own vineyard. It wouldn't have been lost on the Pharisees that in Jesus beginning this parable, he's picking up on this metaphor. This is about God and his people and how he cares for them. And Isaiah describes God's care for Israel in terms of a farmer, a farmer who has poured out his blood and sweat and preparing a vineyard on a hill, watching over its yield. Those of you who come from farming families, anybody here? 
you know, the real labor of love that it is as you work, watch, and pray for the crop to come. This is how God describes his own love for his people, labors over them, watches them attentively, does whatever it takes to tend for his own people that they might bear fruit. And he sings a love song over them as one dearly loved. What a wonderful way to describe God. The opposite of, a, of how maybe we, re- we see God as cold and removed. This is a God who is tender and invested. What a wonderful image of God's glory and our good bound up together. Not only does God desire to make, to gather a people for himself, to plant this people, he intends to make from this people more than they are. To take a people who are as barren and as lifeless as a hill full of stones and to make them into a vineyard flowing with wine, flourishing under his expert care. God's glory and our good intertwined. A God who not only has come to see fruit fruit born from a crop, but to produce that from people like us. This is the wisest of workmen, the most attentive of masters, the chief of makers. This is our creator, God. This is my father's world. And we are his people. But then Jesus advances the image, doesn't he? He introduces a problem, a different problem than the one that Isaiah introduces if you noticed in isaiah's passage what went wrong well the 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 vineyard despite god's cultivating care it bore wild grapes it's the the fault is on the vineyard itself and certainly there are implications for god's people that jesus doesn't mean to avoid but here he doesn't say the problem is located in the vineyard it's located in tenants and servants and workers for hire who are entrusted with nourishing and caring for the land of this owner to nourish as he would and to give back some of its yield. After all, it does not belong to them. They are to yield its fruit, or you could say its glory, back to the one who owns it to begin with. It doesn't take too much imagination for us to figure out who these workers are entrusted with the care of God's vineyard if the vineyard is God's people and God is the owner then what Jesus is doing is pointing a finger right in the chest of the ones who are rejecting him on the spot you you tenants you servants entrusted by God to care for his people the same ones standing in front of him the chief priests and scribes and the elders the self-described shepherds and protectors of Israel who prided themselves on watching out for the people of God even from such likes as Jesus like the landlord the Lord had entrusted the care of his people to others but just like the vineyard in Isaiah 5 it didn't yield what it should not because of the field itself but because of those watching over it which brings us to the second part of our passage and what I want to spend a bit more time unpacking and that's the tenants rebellion You see, when the owner sends for what he is owed, what happens? Servant after servant goes, appealing from the master, and returns not just without the rent check, but bloodied and humiliated. 
You have to imagine how the owner got any volunteers after the first two were treated this way. I mean, you can imagine one of the servants saying, uh, boss, do you, are you noticing the same trend that I am? <laughs> you sure you want to send me to? They return empty-handed. As C.H. Dodd puts it, they are paid only in blows. Some are even killed for their trouble. Before we look at the son, the owner's final appeal, I want to consider what's going on here. After all, in a culture, culture like ours, it's not to imagine, if we were look, to look at this from a different perspective, to even see the tenants as a kind of hero. After all, we love our rebels, don't we? Whether it's a politician standing up against old Washington, or the rebel alliance bucking the bounds of the empire, or Frank Sinatra crooning, I did it my way. No, I'm not going to sing it for you. Maybe you in school had a crush on the bad boy or the bad girl. There's something we like about a rebel, something we like about the person who stands up to the man, who breaks the rules, who throws off what used to master them and seizes their own fate. After all, where would we be as a nation if the colonists didn't rise up against the redcoats? We are in a day in which we are perhaps more skeptical of power and power holders than ever before. There's something we like even more about a rebel. There's something about a rebel that represents true freedom to us. In a manner of speaking, you could construe the actions of the tenants that way, using their resources and their grit to stand against the man, to take down yet another power holder and to seize their own future. Friends, this love for a rebel, and I understand where it comes from, especially when we see those in power using their power to oppress and take advantage of others. Just like in Jesus' day, like the, the Israelites Sometimes it's natural to long for a rebellion. But there is something in our longing that goes beyond just a longing for justice. It's not just a longing for those who, are, who hold power and use it oppressively to be removed. It's something that bristles within us toward authority, period. Authority in general. Even God's own authority. After all, that is what this parable represents, God's authority over his field. And that posture of rebellion against authority, against someone else, even God, telling me how I should live my life and where my happiness would be found, that rebellion is as ancient as sin itself. You could say we see it first in Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters, when the ser serpent first tempts Eve, the language he uses, I want to put that, uh, those verses on the screen. I want you to notice how the serpent first spoke to Eve and see if you can notice the similarity. After he offers the fruit of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil to her, and she responds, we, we cannot eat or even touch that tree lest we die. The serpent responds, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
serpent. What is he offering Eve? It's not just an apple. And friends, there is no indication it was an apple. There's nothing sinful about eating apples. But nonetheless, like, what is he offering in this fruit? A life of our own making. A life of calling the shots on our terms. A life of saying what is good and evil for myself. The serpent is offering for Eve to be like God. And if she was like God, then she didn't need God, did she? In other words, Eve doubted that God's authority really was for her good, that God really deserved her loyalty, and she began to wonder if it wouldn't be better to go around God for her happiness. And so, the very first rebellion against the king of the universe was staged. It turns out, every time we sin, we stage the same rebellion. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are caught in something. Think of a moment in which something you desperately tried to hide was revealed, and you were tempted on the spot to be dishonest about it. Somebody asked you, and you're tempted maybe at least to fudge the truth rather than take responsibility. What exactly are you being tempted to do? Is it just to be dishonest? Is it just to avoid the truth? No, no, what you're actually being tempted by is to take your reputation, to take your happiness into your own hands. You're tempted to believe that the truth is a greater threat to you than sin itself. In other words, you are being tempted to define good and evil on your own terms. You are being tempted to claim the authority that God only, that only God has, to go around God and what he says for your happiness, to be like God. When we sin, we distrust and reject God's words. We might even cast off his words, whether it be about money or forgiveness or gender and sexuality, taking our own happiness into our own hands, saying, God, I'm not sure you can actually be trusted with that part of my life. However, this posture, this heart attitude, this desire to be like God doesn't just manifest in those who, are, who show a blatant disregard for God's rules. It can show up among the ones who obey God's rules as well. After all, isn't that the point of the parable? Who are the villains in the story? Who are the tenants? The rule followers. Or at least they prided themselves in being. It's not the those who blatantly dismiss God that are in the crosshairs here. It's the teachers of Israel who were described as the rebels, the religious professionals, and that would have surprised them to be sure. The whole point of this parable is that those who obey the rules can actually find themselves rejecting God too. How? I actually find a very fascinating illustration of this from the early days of Christianity, if I can nerd out with you for a second. In the second century, specifically in a book that has been written called The Shepherd of Hermas. Anybody heard of this book? Probably only a few of us. It's actually, it was a very popular among early Christians. Many advocated it for it to be included in the Bible itself. 
In fact, it made its way into the Apocrypha, which is included in some Roman Catholic Bibles. If you've never heard of this book, you're in good company, but if you were to look at this book, in many ways it appears very Christian. In fact, it includes a parable like this one, one that seems very familiar and may have been an updated version of it, only with some key changes. And I think you will see why this parable and the message it preaches, and turns out the message of the shepherd of Hermas, is very different than the gospel itself. You see, in the alternate version, you see a owner and a son and a tenant, same characters that are in this passage, only when the owner commissions the, ten- commissions the tenant to do his work, the tenant does not rebel but obeys. He works the ground faithfully. In fact, he works it so faithfully, the owner becomes impressed with the tenant and offers the tenant to own the field himself. In fact, he takes the tenant and he raises him up and says, you are as worthy as my own son to own it, and makes the son and the tenant co-heirs. Very different story and a much happier ending. Instead of rebellion and rejection against the owner and a lot of blood and murder, you have the tenant crowned because of how much he has impressed the one who owned the field. Instead of the villain, the shepherd of Hermas makes the tenant the hero. He updates the parable and changes it. So impressing the father that this tenant cannot help. Well, I should say the father cannot help but to give him salvation. Not going to lie, again, it is a much happier ending. No murder, no accompanying wrath, and it plays into an assumption that many of us have, that we can simply do good enough, if we can do good enough by God, if I can simply impress him, maybe just a bit more than the person sitting next to me, then my salvation is certain, that it's concrete. In fact, God owes it to me. This is the message of many other religions. But this doesn't just mess with some of the details of the story. It messes with the distinctiveness of the gospel itself. As commentator David Edwards points out, what the shepherd of Hermas does to, to this parable is turn this parable from a parable about stubborn rebellion, in fact, our stubborn rebellion against God and his son, which I'm not going to lie, is difficult to swallow. And it turns the parable into a parable of works righteousness. In other words, it it makes this parable into a parable about gaining one's salvation, not by undeserved grace, to enemies, even rebels through the sacrificial death of the Son of God. No, it makes the parable into gaining one's salvation by working hard enough to impress God and put him in my debt. In other words, the shepherd of Hermas, in trying to clean up the problem of this parable, has created a new one. Instead of the path of rebellion, it presents an alternative path to seize our inheritance from the Father, to seize the kind of life we feel like we are owed from God, not by breaking the rules, but by following them. In other words, there is something in us that turns even obedience into rebellion. Obeying God, not really out of loyalty to God, or in real submission 
to his authority, but to put God under mine. Obeying because we hope to make demands of God. That when push comes to shove, that God owes us a life and a status I feel like I deserve. By putting God himself in my debt. Even in obedience, we can treat God as a means to the life I feel like I'm owed. And in doing so, you could say we hope to be like God himself. Even though the religious leaders were never admitted to doing something like this, this is exactly what they're doing, ignoring the word of God, which was calling them to repentance, along with the prophets which had come centuries earlier. After all, that's what these t the uh, servants who are sent by the Father represent, a voice crying out in the wilderness, a voice again and again calling out for God's people to turn and to see. In fact, when it speaks of them laying hands and delivering blows to the head of these servants, it's possible Jesus is even referring to John the Baptist who had his own head removed. Over and over again, what had they done century after century? They had doubted the voice of God and those he had sent, convinced they could earn God's favor on their own terms. Only, friends, we never will. God will always be the maker, and we will always be the made. He will always be the owner, and we will always be the tenants. He is the father of this world. This is my father's world, not my own. My life is not my own. This church is not your own. God will never owe us anything save the wrath that is due these rebels, and we will never be his equal. But that does not stop us from trying. The thing is, all of us, whether we consider ourselves Christians or not, fall into this trap, trying to be like God, just like Adam and Eve did, wanting his glory, pretending to have his authority, desiring a different life than the one God has given me, and failing to give God what he deserves because of what will, it will cost us in return at least partially convinced that God stands in the way of what I really want to have. After all, have you, have you ever experienced a, a sense of deep discontent with your life? Have you ever been jealous of someone else's marriage or influence or the body someone else has? Have you ever felt owed a different life than the one you have? Social media makes this so much worse, doesn't it? The thing is, the longer this sense grows, the sense that God is in my way, that he is keeping me from my happiness, and that I'm going to have to seize it on my own, we not only rob God of the glory that he is due, just like the tenants, we become brutal. We become stingy. We become vindictive, jealous, and cruel. We become takers instead of givers. So much for freedom. 
All because we are skeptical of the voice of God. It makes us brutal towards others and deaf to his own voice crying out. If we really are so skeptical then that God's voice can't, that his voice can be trusted and this has made us brutal in seeking happiness on our own terms, how is it that our hearts can be softened? We need to consider still the worst part of this story. It's not just that servant after servant is bloodied and killed, but the son himself. Let's look at point number three, the son's death. Verse six tells us after all of this, after his servants have returned bloodied and empty-handed, the owner reasons he still has one option left. He can send his son his beloved son, his only son, a son dearly loved by the father. Surely they would respect him. But there's a strangeness in this parable we haven't talked about, and I wonder if you've picked it up. Anyone wonder in this parable why the owner lets this go on for so long? (laughs) Servant after servant, why does he expect that the tenants are going to treat the next servant any different than the last, let alone his own Son, as one commentator puts it, who would keep sending servant after servant, seeing them all return home either in a stretcher or in a body bag? The guy, just to be honest, seems like an idiot. One commentator refers to this as the blessed idiocy of grace, or you could say the blessed apparent idiocy of grace. What what does he mean? That this kind of grace, this kind of long-suffering patience and unrequited love, it looks idiotic from the outside, absolutely foolish, and it is the kind of love we have received from God himself. A God who describes himself over and over again as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You want to know what steadfast love looks like? This. From a certain perspective, it looks almost idiotic. And it is essential that we get this, what it means for God to be faithful when we are faithless. But God didn't just endure their rejection. The owner in this parable didn't just endure the rejection of his servants. Circling back to verse 6, he made his own son vulnerable to it. Why? Well, to use another illustration... Um, I, uh, I often work from home, um, and sometimes Grace needs to run out of the house uh, without four littles in tow. Imagine that. And so I'll stay home at times with some or most of our kids, and I'll keep working in the front room with an earshot of our kids trying to get some work done. And then they start to argue. Imagine that. Only usually, uh, all, all they need is a warning shouted from the front room. All, always, uh, the, that warning is very common, collected, let me, let me assure you. However, there are times when I need to close the computer and intervene myself. When I need to address the issue face-to-face. Why? Well, for at least two reasons. Because sometimes my children need to 
see my authority as dad face to face, but also because at least when I'm level-headed, I need to make my appeal face to face to warn them in authority and in love so that they might choose differently. Not simply shout a warning from another room, but to see them, to look at them, to get down on one knee and to plead, appeal, in great love and authority that worse things don't come. Friends, this is exactly what the owner and father has done in sending his son. John chapter 1, verse 14 puts it this way, and the word, speaking of Jesus as the final communication from the father, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, hear that, the beloved Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The final communication of the Father, God himself dealing with the human race face to face, his authority and his love sent through the Son, demonstrating the grace and truth of the infinite God. Jesus' point to the Pharisees is that he, whether they could recognize him or not, is the Father's final appeal. And just as they could not recognize his voice in the prophets, they do not recognize the Father's voice in him. In fact, he warns them with this parable, should they continue down this path, they will only end up doing what they have done before and now commit the ultimate blaspheming and killing the son, just like the tenants, earning God's much-deserved and long-withheld wrath. And who, at this point in the parable, would say they deserve anything less? To put this differently, if this is true, rejecting Jesus according to Jesus isn't just rude, it is blasphemous. This might surprise you if you're not a believer. Jesus did not perceive himself as simply another teacher. Again, he didn't just dismiss those who rejected them. Haters going to hate. Jesus saw our posture to him, our receptivity to him, as being tantamount to our receptivity to God himself. Rejecting Jesus amounts to rejecting God whether it is done intentionally or not, ignoring Jesus, moving on from Jesus, amounts to stiff-arming the God of the universe in the most profound way possible. It is refusing to give the owner of your life what he is due. And let's just be honest, we owe him everything. You don't even own the breath in your lungs. Rejecting the Son amounts to saying to God himself, Thanks very much. I'll, t- I'll take your stuff, but I won't take your authority. I'll take your stuff, but I won't take you. That is the tone of the passage. It's a warning and an eerie one for those of us who know where these things result, even in the week that Jesus is speaking this parable. For those who continue to resist the Son and who finally reject him, God's patience will not last forever. He will get his vineyard back. We must hear the warning here, and I 
I'd be foolish not to make an appeal to those of you who are not Christians. I, I, I want you to encourage you to press in, to consider Christ, to consider his claims. But do not hold him off forever. And if you are to reject his claims, to not do so tritely. Friends, if this is true, God's patience does not last forever, and today is the day of salvation. This passage, its tone is a warning out of great love to us. To stiff arm the Son of God is finally to stiff arm God himself. And it will come with a treatment that is no less severe than what the owner threatened of the tenants who denied him his rent. Friends, that being said, do you notice how they responded? They perceived that he had told this parable against him, against them. Did you, do you love that? He, at the end of all this, they, they said, wait, wait a second, I think Jesus is talking about us. Yeah, no, duh. And yet, what do they do? They fulfilled their very role. It's as if in Jesus' prophecy of what would come, they leave from there and do the very thing. In fact, the only reason that they don't kill or arrest Jesus on the spot is because they're afraid of what people would think. They're afraid of rejection. The very topic of this very parable. They still left and went away. They still sought to arrest him. And eventually, again, they fulfill their role, taking the son into their hands casting him outside the vineyard, casting him outside the city, killing him upon the cross. It's hard not, again, not to think of John 1 again, the same passage where it spoke of the word <clears throat> becoming flesh and dwelling among us. What does it say in verse 10 and 11? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. As we said before, there is <clears throat> something seriously wrong with our desires. We're not so unlike these Pharisees. We're no more capable of hearing God's warning even to us. Of recognizing the voice that is in front of us. We are no more capable of hearing that warning without God's help than they were. In fact... Dr. R.C. Sproul points out in his commentary in Mark, the fact that they would go on from here to murder Christ, God incarnate, proves that sinners, including us, would kill God himself if we could get away with it. Because when it comes down to it, something deep within us believes this lie. Even if we consider ourselves quite religious. We believe that God stands in the way or he is, in a mean, he is a means to an end. We are seeking in our sin to be like God rather than to submit to him. I have to tell you, no other religion describes God this way, though. No other religion describes God as being so constantly betrayed or as drawing so near to the very ones who have made themselves his enemies. In other religions, either God is far too busy and aloof to care, 
or he is a just God who brings his swift wrath immediately. He doesn't draw this close. He doesn't draw close enough to be wounded, let alone die at our hands. This is where God actually demonstrates even more blessed idiocy than the owner of this parable. After all, the owner in this parable did not know what they would do to the son. He hoped for the best. The father, though, the father to which this owner points, he did. He did know what would happen to the son. In fact, over and over again, Jesus tells the crowds that Jesus must suffer many things, even death. Not just that he will suffer things, but that he must suffer things. And he must do so according to his father's will. A father who is willing not simply to make his son vulnerable to rejection, but to send his son to death. Why? This has to do with our fourth and final point, the father's victory. Do you notice Jesus' words in verse 10? After this parable is completed, even as it, the parable itself ends on a rather stern and horrible note, hear these words in verse 10 and 11. Again, he's speaking to those who should be experts in the law. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is switching here from the parable to look at an image that shows up in Psalm 118. It's the same psalm that was quoted as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here, this image speaks of a building project, specifically the building of Solomon's own temple, the temple that Jesus has just cleansed, or I should say a reproduction of it. I mean a recreation of it. This isn't Solomon's temple that's standing. It's speaking of one of these stones. One of these stones that was initially assessed by the workers and lined up for the building project and was passed over as unsuited. Only then to have that stone become the most essential stone in the building. A keystone upon which every other stone would rest and be measured by. In other words, even though passed over, even though cast aside, even now, the promise of the Psalms and the promise of Jesus himself is that this wouldn't be the end of the story, that Jesus would be the cornerstone and seen to be it. He would be vindicated by God himself, and he would be vindicated when the Father raised him from the dead. The ultimate, I told you so. I told you should pay, pay attention to him. But even more so, to take this one who had been rejected and dismissed, and not just lift him high and lift it up, his name above every other name, but to build something upon him. What exactly? To build a true temple of the living God, a new people among whom God would walk with forever. A temple that would be comprised of the very people who had done this to him. The very people who had cast him aside. That is who he would add to it. To put this differently, rejection. 
the, one of the things we most want to avoid in our lives is the very thing that Jesus embraced for the sake of the ones who rejected him so that we would not be rejected by God in the end. The apparent defeat of Christ is the mean by which God would accomplish his greatest victory. It is through Christ's rejection that the Father's goals are accomplished. And as the psalmist puts it, it is marvelous in our sight. This parable is a brutal one, to be sure. After all, who wants to be seen as the rebel responsible for the death of God? But unless we see ourselves in the midst of it, to see that we contributed nothing to our salvation save the rejection that made it necessary, I have to tell you, you will never be able to treat God as anything different than standing in the way of your happiness or being a means to an end. Unless we see ourselves here and it breaks us to see that I did that to my Lord, we will never be able to say that the gospel is marvelous in our sight. Strangely, seeing yourself as the rebel is the only path to true and lasting freedom. Perhaps no better example we can think of, I can think of this than the Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. Just listen to his words in 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. No. That almost sounds like the alternate version of the parable. The one who showed himself impressive to the owner of this vineyard. I was judged faithful and appointed into God's service. But then notice what he says in verse 13. The very next verse. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent of who God himself. You see, even the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary the church has ever known, was a Pharisee by training. One of the very religious leaders who had cast off the Son of God, a man cut from the same cloth, who did not recognize the voice of God in Jesus, but spent years hunting down the followers of Jesus, convinced he was doing God's will. He was the very one who the parable embodied and had come to experience this firsthand. In fact, in verse 15, notice what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul came to see his story in this one, that he was the one who had strung up the Son and made himself an enemy of the Father, and yet he recognized that the Son had come for such as him, that you might even see in the Apostle Paul an example of his perfect patience. Friend, I don't know what has you coming this morning, and some of us... We might be holding God at an arm's length. 
perhaps because we're not convinced we really need him. We outperform our peers, and God has become that means to an end, or because some of us are not sure that his grace really could qualify for someone like me. Hear from the chief of sinners the assurance of his perfect patience. In fact, it is those who embrace it, and only those who do, who only recognize that it was a grace given to a wretch such as me, only those that will be built upon Jesus, the very one we have cast aside, that God might make not the faithful servants, but the enemies, the rebels, even you, his heir. As the hymn puts it, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Father, we come to you as those who have done what this parable warns against. We have not recognized nor heard the voice of the living God calling out for the glory he is due. We have not borne fruit. And we have stood in the way of the fruit of others. We have become just as brutal, assuming that our good is found somehow on our terms and becoming like God. And that rebellion and rejection has taken us so far as to crucify the Son of God himself. And yet what blessed assurance is ours for those who would hear that very bad news and those who would receive the forgiveness that is offered to unforgivable rebels. Lord, what assurance and freedom is found in building our lives upon the cornerstone, the one we rejected. Lord, I pray that today we would see our sin as you see it. We would stop our comparisons. We would stop our silly resentments. We would stop resisting you as if you stood in our way. We would come to the owner of all things, the author of life, asking that he might forgive such as I, he might make me his heir undeserved, and he might build me into this new temple where God himself will rule. Lord, thank you for your grace undeserved, and it's in light of that grace that we worship even now. Pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.